Welcome to The View from Apollo, a podcast where we discuss current macroeconomic trends and break down how they'll impact our investors. I'm your host, Torsten Slock. I'm Chief Economist here at Apollo Global Management. Each episode, I'll be joined by leaders from across our business who will share their unique perspective on the market factors that are shaping sectors and investment strategies. You can catch new episodes by subscribing to The View from Apollo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or by visiting our homepage, apollo.com. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone. This is Torsten Slack. Welcome to The View from Apollo. Our guests on this episode are Jeff Strong and Dylan Fu, who are the co-heads of infrastructure here at Apollo. And from their seats, they have a very good idea about inflation and how it's working its way in and out of the economy. We're going to cover a lot of ground from the importance of inflation to the outlook for any infrastructure assets to the sensitivity for interest rates to inflation. So Jeff and Dylan, thank you very much for joining us and taking time out of your busy schedules. Uh, Before we get started, uh, maybe it would be good if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your roles at Apollo. So maybe Jeff, why don't you start? So uh, this is Jeff Strong. I'm a senior partner and co-head of infrastructure, as you said. Uh, I've been at the firm for uh, about 10 years. I'd say the areas I tend to focus on are, are more where infrastructure and the broader energy ecosystem intersect. And so that could be uh, you know, power, utilities, renewable energy, wind, solar, battery storage, uh, things like LNG or water or, or other areas around uh, all of that. All right, thank you. And Dylan, when did you join Apollo and, and what is your role at the moment? So I joined Apollo two years ago uh, to come on board and be the co-head of infrastructure alongside Jeff. Uh, my background, Torsten, uh, this is very similar to Jeff. I've been doing infrastructure investing for nearly two decades now, although with a slightly different flavor. Uh, if you can't tell, my accent is Australian. And I started my career there really off the back of a lot of privatizations and really kind of the early stages of the infrastructure asset class in the in the early to mid 2000s, which has a lot of relevance to today's conversation because infrastructure early on was pitched as you know, hedge against inflation. So we can test some of that today. But throughout the last two decades, I've really had a focus more around social and probably more recently communications infrastructure. And what that means in practice is really hard assets associated with those sectors. So if you think about in transport toll roads, for example, bridges, airports, ports, really large infrastructure that makes the economy work. And in the case more recently, in the last sort of five years, communications infrastructure as that's become essential to society. And again, we focus on the hard assets there that support the communications ecosystem. So things like data centers, fiber and towers, for example. Maybe Dylan, can you just tell us how is infrastructure categorized? In other words, what components are there normally when we think about uh, infrastructure as a broad asset class? It's an interesting question because infrastructure has really evolved in the last two decades. And what I can tell you is that when infrastructure became an asset class and evolved early on, there was always a real focus around being essential services, essential assets to society or the economy, for example. Uh, very strong barriers to entry, in some cases monopolies, particularly if it was a uh, government-related asset that you were privatizing. And what could examples be of that? So early on, for example, I mean, in the UK, there were privatizations or PPPs rather, which were 20-year contracts for critical public infrastructure. 
whether that's schools or hospitals, that's just an example. In some cases, you weren't taking operating risk. It was really more like a financial structure uh, for the government, or it could be concessions. Uh, it could be, in the case of the US, there have been some toll road concessions where the infrastructure investor signs a contract with the local municipal or the state or the federal, in some cases, to own and operate an asset or a transport asset like a toll road for a period of time, whether that's 20 years, 50 years, in some cases up to 100 years, and then take a return from that. You know, it's funny, if you go back really to the to the early days of infrastructure investing, um, it, it, it really was done initially out of traditional private equity funds. And so you some of these assets or companies that would clearly meet the definition of infrastructure that Dylan was just talking about, deals to acquire these companies or make these investments were done out of you know traditional private equity funds, which with a much higher cost of capital. But over time, as people began to think about the underlying nature of those assets, the the nature of the cash flows, and really the nature of the risk, it became very clear that there was a different cost of capital that should be ascribed to these to these assets. Okay, and given inflation is such a big issue in markets at the moment, and there's a lot of discussion about whether inflation really is a temporary problem or whether inflation might be a more permanent problem, maybe Dylan, can you give us some examples of um, how do you see inflation both on the cost side, also on the prices of the services and products sold? You know, clearly it's something that we're watching very closely. You know, inflation has a potential large impact on all of our investments, not just infrastructure. Whilst I like giving specific answers, what I would tell you is that the answer really just depends on the type of asset that you have. And we see, again, some very long-term contracted assets that have inflation protection embedded within the contracts, whether that's a concession-type asset with the government or whether it's a you know, sort of high investment-grade counterparty contract like we might have in you know, one of our tower co-investments, for example, which builds towers all across the US and signs long-term contracts uh, because it's considered critical infrastructure by the carriers who are putting their 5G equipment on it that come with some form of inflation linkage or protection in them. All the way through to, you know, let's use infrastructure services again, which tend to be shorter-term contracts subject to labour pressure on margins and have no form of inflation protection. Um, it's, it's a real mix. I think as a general statement, I would say that it's something um, that we're monitoring very closely on the cost side as well. If you think about some of the inflation flow on impacts to prices of goods, um, infrastructure is a big consumer in many cases when it's greenfield or new build infrastructure of large projects. So the price of steel, for example, can really matter. Um, the price of many other types of materials that go into building infrastructure, where, whether it's an airport, whether it's an offshore renewable project, can, can really impact the project very early on. But as infrastructure investors, you know, it's our job and it's always been our job to sort of, I guess, do proper risk mitigation, if you like, and risk allocation. And so one of the things we look for when we're investing is if there is a potential shock uh, from inflation, how can we mitigate against that? You know, how can we build a portfolio that has protection against that um, and could come out of that economic shock longer term in a strong position? Yeah, I was maybe going to go maybe one step deeper on that, which I think is is all spot on with what Dylan just said. Um, if you think about the types of assets or the types of investments that would have you know varying degrees of inflationary risk, you know we can talk about what happens to a fixed income portfolio or what happens to an equities portfolio. 
and, and maybe just to talk about equities for a moment. If you think about most companies, most of, uh, most of the economy is composed of companies that operate in highly competitive environments where if you've got inflationary cost pressures, you may not be able to pass those costs on in the form of higher prices to your customers. Um, you may have other uh, inflationary risks that impact your, your business model, your operating model, and maybe you're operating at really thin margins. And when you put a little bit of debt in the capital structure, it may be really difficult for some companies in the economy to get through a really inflationary uh, cycle. But if you think about that and juxtapose it to, to infrastructure assets, as Dylan was saying, you know, not only are we talking about fixed assets with long, useful lives that are going to be around for a long time, aren't going to be competed away, but you typically have businesses and assets that have you know, very high margins, right? Because the, the upfront investment in the asset itself was a big part of the cost structure. But going forward, the ongoing OPEX, the ongoing expenses are relatively low and small percentage of that cost structure. So you've got high margins. A lot of cushion uh, built in there to absorb some inflationary pressure on the cost side. And then typically, on top of those high margins, you usually have something on the revenue side that helps you with inflation. The best case is an actual CPI or PPI adjuster, which definitely exists in a lot of infrastructure assets. You might have some assets like we've got that are structured as a triple net lease with all costs passed through. So if there's some cost inflation, you can pass that on. And then you've also got uh, you know regulated utility type assets that are governed by an allowed ROE structure, which again essentially allows you to recoup all of your costs. Uh, so all of those are, are really important factors uh, that we think allow infrastructure assets to you know weather an inflationary storm probably better than than most parts of the economy would. And Jeff, from your chair, I mean, you have for several decades now worked uh, in energy. And of course, energy is uh, very closely correlated with inflation. So when energy prices, uh, which have been going up, obviously, uh, now through most of the pandemic, uh, when energy prices go up and we at the same time have higher cost pressures, I mean, what does that mean for the differentiation within infrastructure? What we've done with our infrastructure business First and foremost, and I think this is a really critical distinction, is, is to try to insulate ourselves from as many, many of these variables that are out of our control as possible. And one of the ones that we, we, we really try to focus on is commodity prices. So our infrastructure business is really not looking to make commodity bets one way or the other, really at any level in the portfolio. So we, we've traditionally avoided you know, oil and gas risk. Uh, we've avoided a lot of merchant power risk in some of these other areas, uh, whether it's you know metals type commodities, steel, et cetera. So we've tried to avoid businesses that are directly linked to those uh, to those underlying commodities where you need you know a, a strong commodity price to boost volumes and support those infrastructure assets. And so as a result of that, I think we're a little bit more insulated than, than maybe some of our infrastructure peers uh, might be. Uh, to those those types of, of swings in, in commodity prices. Now, on the cost side, uh, I was really more talking about the revenue side there, but on the cost side, uh, you are going to have uh, the potential for some exposure, again, whether it's in the form of input costs or labor costs, steel costs, as you point out, in a given project. So what we're going to look to do there is to uh, hedge that and protect ourselves as much as possible. Again, with the starting point that you've got naturally higher margins, You've got some natural factors in the underlying investment and business itself that that make it less susceptible uh, to to inflationary pressures. But if they are there, 
we're going to look to do everything we can to, to really protect ourselves. The second factor coming from inflation that potentially has some importance for infrastructure is, of course, if rates start to go up. And of course, rates have not gone up in any significant way uh, uh, through this uh, pandemic. If anything, they have stayed surprisingly low. So, Dylan, um, this second sort of call it derivative, if you will, where we also begin to worry about, well, what happens if inflation goes up? Well, that's not only about costs, meaning input prices and output prices, it's also about what rates would be doing. So how do you think about this um, other factor? That's a good question, Torsten. That's where I was I was going earlier when I said we don't just think about inflation in isolation. It's, you know, the broader economy, it's the impact to rates, it's, you know, employment or unemployment. Um, you know, a couple of different ways to look at this. The first thing I would say is that infrastructure assets, because of the predictability that we talked about, because of the the, the, the typical presence of long-term contracts in core and even core plus infrastructure, they can they can withstand a very highly levered cash cash uh, capital structure rather. Uh, in some cases, if it's a concession asset, you know you can have a ninety percent LTV, which is generally unheard of in in most other asset classes. So by definition, you have a lot of debt in some of these assets, which is often warranted because of the cash flow predictability. And if rates go up, theoretically, that should have an impact um, if you're not fixing your rates. And, you know, we try to, again, for risk mitigation purposes, put in place long-term debt uh, and fix or hedge against those interest rate spikes. So that's just one, one point of note there. If you are not doing that, or if you have an asset that perhaps doesn't withstand uh, the ability to put a higher amount of leverage on it, and maybe it's shorter duration, maybe it isn't hedged, then that's going to have a big impact because that can flow through to your cash flows pretty significantly, just given the nature and the size of some of the leverage in these assets and have you protected risk. If you are sticking to the traditional definitions, the asset back, the long duration, the risk mitigation, then frankly, the impact should be relatively controlled and maybe there's some longer term valuation impact against you. If you are stretching the definition of infrastructure, though, maybe into more traditional private equity style risk, then that could be a real problem for you, particularly if you have a, a very leveraged capital structure and maybe less protection against rates increasing. I'm glad that you raised the topic of financial risk uh, with respect to inflation, Torsten, because um, you know, we think a lot about, uh, you know, the income statement side of risk and what's going on if your cost structure goes up, your margins are going to decline, do you have a top line adjuster to offset those costs? And those are extremely important things to think about. But a lot of times people don't spend as much time thinking about financial risk uh, and their capital structure and putting their capital structure together appropriately. And I think hey, if we're known for anything at Apollo, uh, it's it's being thoughtful around capital structure and taking that into account. You know, in an inflationary environment, you've got to expect rates at some point to start to start showing up, or at least account for that possibility in your underwriting cases and think about that scenario, plan for it, make sure your investment can survive it, uh, because it'll ripple through a few different ways. Uh, number one would be you know your duration of your capital structure. So if you've got shorter term debt you're going to have to think about potentially refinancing that debt into a higher rate environment, which is going to put pressure on your earnings, pressure on your cash flows, uh, and have an ultimate negative impact on the, on the performance of, of the underlying investment. So we think a lot about the duration of our, of our investment. One of the nice things about infrastructure 
is that because you're typically working with longer dated fixed assets where you don't have as much business cycle risk, you don't have the risk of competitors coming away and competing away your business to the same degree. There's, there's one other component to financial risk that we haven't really touched on though yet, which is, uh, which is the, the terminal value risk. And so in a closed end fund structure, you, you ultimately need to think about selling or monetizing your assets. Now we've traditionally thought about infrastructure under longer term hold periods than we might for private equity, but it is absolutely the case that in a world of high, higher, uh, higher rates, um, discount rates are likely to increase over time. And that higher discount rate, when you go to exit your investment, is going to have an impact uh, on the underlying uh, on underlying valuation and the results of your of your uh, individual investment. So we need to think about that one in in terms of you know preparing for longer term holds. The other thing we can do to mitigate that potentially is making sure that a good portion of our return is coming from current income and current yield and owning long term assets that we are happy to own for a longer period of time. But that's an important factor that. Uh, is, has probably been a little overlooked recently because we've just been in this really benign investing environment with you know zero percent interest rates for a really long time, you know the stock market and valuations kind of just going steadily up, up and up. Uh, but that's not going to be the case forever. And uh, when it comes to uh, more broadly green investing, uh, what have you done in the renewables area? It has become a huge topic for uh, the business for, for Delamy to think about, um, and we talk about it. Uh, really, all the time uh, for for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, number one, our our investors uh, really care about it. Um, they 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 are looking for uh, GPs that that have a have an ESG focus, have a real ESG policy and real practices around that in place, and thinking about the environment, being good stewards of the environment, uh, really matters. Uh, secondly, it it. it it matters because it impacts the underlying investments. There's no question that we are in probably still the early innings of a big, long-term secular shift away from traditional uh, fossil fuels and in favor of uh, renewable energy, wind, solar, battery storage. Uh, this has been going on for quite some time, and it, it is absolutely accelerating, and the rate of change like a lot of these things, it kind of it looks like it's not really happening, and then you you look up one day and you realize there's a lot of things have happened over the last four or five years, and that's absolutely the case here. We've seen efficiencies increase, the cost structure of wind and solar come down to be competitive with uh, traditional energy and, and hydrocarbon-based uh, ener sources of energy and power. Uh, we think that is a a, a really long-term uh, secular trend. That's going to be driven by economics, and it's also going to be driven by policy tailwinds and policy support at the federal, state, local level, even the international level. So there's, this is you know a multi-decade thing that needs to happen to 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 get to the renewable energy targets that have been put out there to make a difference in terms of long-term CO2 uh, emissions, to make a difference in terms of long-term global temperatures. Uh, this is this is something that's going to have to to be done, and it extends. You know, way beyond, way beyond just wind, solar, and these types of power generation. If you think about the impact of climate change and what rising sea levels, for example, might mean for other types of infrastructure, ports with rising sea levels, the need to invest in ports to protect from those rising sea levels, 
the need to harden the, the transmission grid, the power grid, to protect against forest fires like we've seen out west now for the last several years uh, in very large and catastrophic ways. These are big, huge investments that need to be made um, around, around climate change, to prepare for climate change, and to uh, bring the carbon emissions down to, to, to some of the targets that have been set. This isn't going to be something that gets done and funded over a year or two. Uh, we think this is a, a big multi, multi-decade uh, trend. So yes, what have we done? Right now in our portfolio, um, we own probably about 15, uh, within the infrastructure business alone, we own about uh, 15 renewable energy assets, uh, wind, solar assets, um, and then some other businesses that are focused on uh, energy efficiency uh, and doing other things to, to reduce the carbon footprint, like the, the Johnson Controls uh, uh, joint venture that we just announced uh, uh, last week. Okay, and Dylan, on your side, um, when it comes not only to, of course, uh, energy companies and uh, directly to renewable investing, where do you see green investing and is it also showing up in in basically all kinds of infrastructure um, and do you have some examples of uh, how you have looked at it from the investments uh, from from the expertise that you have yeah i mean i think more broadly you know esg uh, which incorporates obviously the environmental and green side of things is a really big part of what we do on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it's part of our underwriting. It's part of our ongoing portfolio management. And, you know, we've seen a really big shift in the last 24 months. There was a big focus on the green and environmental side, but the social side of things as well has become really important uh, and something we're doing as a firm and as a team. Um, on the E side and the green side of things in particular, you know, one of the areas that we oversee is transportation infrastructure, which really in many ways, just dovetails into the work and the overlap that Jeff talked about in terms of energy decarbonization. Uh, and the transport side of things is a big consumer of energy. And so whether you think about you know, planes, landing at airports that we invest in, uh, going towards hybrid models, electrification, if you think about ports infrastructure um, and how the maritime vessels and marine world can move towards a more clean clean and green future. It, it's certainly a big part of what we do. The other thing I, I would also talk about is some of the assets that are big consumers of power. So I mentioned data centers um, earlier on, which really are huge consumers of, of power. And the same with cold storage, actually. If you look at cold storage infrastructure, that's really just you know a really large refrigerator uh, consuming a lot of power to stay extremely cold, uh, typically located near a port. We're looking at ways in all of those subsectors to, to cross-pollinate the work that Jeff's doing and you know things like JCI, for example, the Johnson Controls Partnership, into those types of assets to improve them, um, to decarbonize and to make them you know, more part of the 21st century world that we want to leave for our kids. Of course, uh, we have all been working from home during the pandemic and both of you have now returned uh, to your offices uh, more and more. How do you uh, invest in infrastructure when you can't go out and look at it? Uh, how do you do this from your home? How has the pandemic and working from home affected uh, each of you? So maybe start with you, Jeff. You know, Dylan and I were joking that uh, about a year and a half ago, we were uh, on the road every week. We were flying in and out of airports, looking at deals together, talking to our investors, and it all just ground to a halt so quickly. And it took us a little while to adjust 
to a world where we weren't, you know, going to airports all the times, you know, going to see management teams all the time, going to see the infrastructure firsthand, <laughs> going to see the exactly. And and you know what? It's 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 an interesting thing. Uh, I'm glad you asked because it, it, there's a lot that you you need to do in person. It, it's it's really important when you're doing a deal, you're partnering with someone to to sit down with them, look them in the eye. Uh, get to know them a little bit, get a get a sense for the relationship in ways that are you know hard to quantify or or, or really explain. You, you you can just pick up on things. But I'm also a big believer, as you said, in actually going and physically taking a look at these things. And you know you you walk around the 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 power plant and and you can kind of get a feel for how well maintained it is. And I'm not an engineer or, or a technical uh, person by background. I'm you know I'm an investor and. Like a lot of investors, you you become you know sort of you develop skills and mastery of, of a whole bunch of different areas, but but you don't go as deep into you know say the inner workings of a power plant as as an engineer or some of the consultants uh, are that we hire. But you can still pick up on on things that might seem amiss, things that aren't being taken care of the right way. We've had to find ways to to make little road trips where maybe we've driven to a site or you know uh, we, we did fly it you know a handful of times. Uh, when, when travel restrictions have been lifted. Um, we've also, I think, really had the benefit of doing a lot of deals that have been sourced on a proprietary basis. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, deals that aren't uh, the, 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 the product of a big auction that some investment bank is running, but actually deals that came from relationships that we already had, people we already knew. Um, and so we already knew the counterparties, we already knew the companies. And so it made it a lot easier uh, to do the diligence, but look, we've had to get creative. I mean, we, we, you know, uh, there's now, um, you know, people who are, you know, you engage some, some consultants and they'll do site visits, uh, for you. And in some cases they may send like a drone out to fly over the place, take some pictures and take wow. some videos of what's going on. And same thing for you, Dylan. I mean, how do you spend uh, and buy something, uh, worth hundred million, hundreds of millions or, or even billions without having seen it? Yeah, it, it, this is a really interesting question. It's something that Jeff and I spoke a lot about during the pandemic. I mean, right in the depths of it, you know, we were still trying to execute deals and frankly, look for opportunities. And, you know, COVID was interesting because one of the focus areas, in addition to renewables, has been communications and the need to bridge the digital divide and have high quality, uh, you know, access to broadband infrastructure, for example, 5G, wireless internet uh, connectivity. And so for us, there was actually a lot of opportunity we saw, but the actual execution of deals was really interesting. And, you know, speaking for myself, and I know Jeff actually had a separate deal as well. It was the first time in my career I had done a deal without actually sitting in and looking in the eyes of the management team, the CEO and the management team, negotiating the incentive packages, the compensation, talking about the alignment, all of the kind of really important things that matter when you're executing a deal. But you had to adjust and you had to move on and you had to respond. And that's something that, you know, we sort of recognized very, very early on. You know, one of the communications deals we did, for example, had multiple locations across the US. And, you know, we used drones to go there, take video footage, or our consultant did rather, and send it back to us. Uh, we used satellite imagery in that case. Um, and we had to just rely a lot on, you know, being flexible and just being nimble. Before we get to an end here, I wanted to just ask one last question to both of you. Um, more broadly speaking, if we look beyond inflation and rates, uh, what 
keeps you up at night. Um, what are the major risks to infrastructure as an asset class? You know, we've, we've really kind of touched on um, any number of, of, of the risks that, that, we, that we really focus on, you know, inflation, uh, discount rates, refinancing risk. Um, you know, the other thing that we just always are, are, are really, really focused on when we own, own these assets is the operational performance. And in many cases, you know, we're, we're really relying on, again, it kind of goes back to my point around people earlier, we're relying on people to execute um, on, on these plans. And so always making sure that we've got the right management team in place, we've got you know, real true experts who are involved with all of these assets uh, to make sure that we're we're hitting and 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 beating the numbers that we've that we've underwritten. Um, but you you really want to make sure that these these assets are well maintained, well taken care of, and able to perform at the levels uh, that that we think they should, because at the end of the day, that's going to drive a lot of the uh, uh, of the outcomes of these investments. One of the ways we've been able to do that historically. Is is making sure, and Dylan alluded to this earlier, making sure that we've got a really compelling, exciting proposition for the people who work for these companies. So making sure that we've got incentive plans in place that are exciting and compelling. Uh, we believe very firmly in alignment of interest to make sure that, hey, if we do well with these investments, that not only do our LPs and our funds and our investors do really well, but that the employees and management teams who run the assets also do well. And so there's, there's generally some, some excitement and enthusiasm around working for one of our portfolio companies that I think does uh, provide some level of protection against that. I think Jeff hit it, the nail on the head with the operational risks in addition to the financial risks. I think that's something we're exceptionally focused on and just executing really well in our investments, supporting the, the, the portfolio companies, the management teams. I guess maybe I'll tackle the question in a slightly different way, which is more the macro perspective. I wouldn't say it necessarily keeps us awake at night because we sleep pretty well as infrastructure investors. We tend to be investing in fairly boring, <laughs> stable asset class, uh, predictable. So, you know, generally speaking, um, we do sleep well. But one of the things that we think about a lot is and just taking a huge step back and upwards, it ties into your, your green question, is just what is the infrastructure needs of the world? What are the needs of the world in the next 50 years, not the last 50 years? And whilst we talk a lot about infrastructure being stable and boring, you know, societies are changing, demographics are changing, social expectations are changing, urbanization is happening, aging population. There's a lot of big, broader things that are happening which will shape what's needed for infrastructure, whether that's the decarbonization stuff that uh, Jeff spoke about, whether that's modern smart cities, whether that's, you know, supply chain issues. And so for us, you know, we spend a lot of time also thinking and planning and setting ourselves up for success for what the future of infrastructure looks like in the next, you know, three, four decades, not what it looked like three, four decades ago. Because the world has changed at a pretty incredible pace. If you think about, you know, 30, 40 years ago, something like airports, you know, wasn't considered really critical or infrastructure um, I use that example deliberately because even though it's been hit by COVID, I still think people consider airports to be very critical and will continue being a, a very important part of the uh, transportation infrastructure chain. So that, that sort of macro stuff is something that's really interesting to think about and make sure you're positioning your portfolio, your assets to benefit from the tailwinds behind some of those trends. Well, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Dylan. And to our listeners, we hope this was an informative and enlightening conversation. 
Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Apollo Global Management Incorporated, together with its subsidiaries, Apollo, makes no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, with respect to the accuracy, reasonableness, or completeness of any of the statements made during this podcast, including, but not limited to, statements obtained from third parties. Opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the current judgment of the speaker as of the date indicated. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Apollo and are subject to change at any time without notice. Apollo does not have any responsibility to update this podcast to account for such changes. There can be no assurance that any trends discussed during this podcast will continue. Statements made throughout this podcast are not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting, legal, or tax advice and do not constitute an investment recommendation or investment advice. Investors should make an independent investigation of the information discussed during this podcast including consulting their tax, legal, accounting, or other advisors about such information. Apollo does not act for you and is not responsible for providing you with the protections afforded to its clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security, product, or service, including interest in any investment product or fund or account managed or advised by Apollo. Certain statements made throughout this podcast may be forward-looking in nature due to various risks and uncertainties. Actual events or results may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking information. As such, undue reliance should not be placed on such statements. Forward-looking statements may be identified by the use of terminology including, but not limited to, may, will, should, expect, anticipate, target, project, estimate, intend, continue, or believe, or the negatives thereof or other variations thereon or comparable terminology.